Please turn your Bibles to the book of Colossians, where we'll focus our attention this morning. Do your best to imagine yourself in Paul's sandals in 61 plus or minus a year or so, 61 A.D. Imagine yourself under arrest in Rome. You're an enemy of the most powerful nation in the world. You've been serving Christ for nearly three decades at this point. You've traveled from one end of the Roman Empire to the other. You've devoted your life to strengthening and planting churches from Jerusalem to Rome to Corinth to Antioch to Ephesus to Philippi to Thessalonica and all points on the map in between. You've preached to rulers and authorities. You've cared for and loved everything from princes to paupers, nobodies to somebodies. You've seen God do amazing things in miraculous moments and powerful movements. And you've felt the pain of earthly temporal failure and the evil of Satan's seemingly unfettered assaults. Paul knew what it was to live for Christ. And though he may not, uh, though he knew many in the ancient world who were Christians, he didn't know everybody. Uh, But it seems as though everybody knew Paul. And they knew Paul as a man who could point them to Christ. And so there's Paul in Rome, chained to the Praetorian Guard in the company of a few of his friends with his son in the faith, Timothy, and Archippus, his fellow soldier in Christ, who'd labored alongside of him for decades. And Onesimus, who Paul had witnessed firsthand be transformed by the gospel that he had given his life to Men who represent this cohort of syndalos or fellow slaves to the master of Christ that he'd lived his life for alongside these kinds of men. Paul had been on three missionary journeys. He'd seen every backwater and high society place around the known world. He'd walked thousands of miles, been arrested, tried, beaten, caused riots, been shipwrecked, been stoned and whipped, all for Christ. And now, Paul's in his mid-50s, and he feels life's final sunset coming. He's poured out his life in every direction that God had pointed him. He's physically sick. He had a mysterious God-given thorn in the flesh that afflicted him, body and soul. He was attended to by Luke, who, in my opinion, was his personal physician. Luke's always showing up where Paul was. Why? Because Paul was a sick guy, and Luke helped him. Paul was tired. Though the candle of his life flickered, the flame of his soul burned white hot and bright for the glory of Christ. And there, in the dark, dank confines of Rome's oppressive power and captivity, You can imagine there's a knock on the door, a summons. Could this be a writ of execution? Is this how the final blow to Paul's life and ministry would come? Could this be a new political figure, perhaps, that was going to set Paul free? What could it be? Who could it be? What could they want? What does God have next for Paul? Well, the knock on the door was an invitation for a visitor, and the visitor was Epaphras. 
And Epaphras came with a host of needs, a plethora of questions, a buffet of struggle, all imported from Colossae. And as Paul so often did, he listened to the stories and struggles of God's people. He heard their battles against their own flesh. He heard their struggles against the world that hated them and against the air that was within them and the false teachers amongst them. Paul heard Epaphras and he felt his heartache for the flock that he shepherded in Colossae. Colossae. Paul been almost everywhere, but Paul hadn't been to Colossae because Colossae was pretty much nowhere. It was a town that had been thriving. It was a town that had been something. But when Paul was in prison in 61 AD, it was a town that was no longer much. It was literally hanging on by a thread. It was a textile community, only there still because of the sheep and the wool that it produced. Colossae was on a crossroads. It was a couple of days heavy walk from, uh, from Ephesus. And so if you needed something, you would just walk a little farther and get to Ephesus where you had better products and better selection and a better price. Colossae was shriveling and the church was struggling. And Epaphras shows up and tells Paul, I'm from Colossae and I need your help. Esteemed scholar J.B. Lightfoot said bluntly what many throughout church history hinted at lightly. Colossae, he says, was the least important church to which any of St. Paul's epistles were addressed. You can imagine most celebrity pastors here, Epaphras showing up from Colossae, and they say, oh, Colossae, well, bless your heart, you know, and just kind of move on. But not Paul. Paul heard the struggles of these people that were Christ's people. And to satisfy the shepherding needs of Epaphras and the Christological display he builds is a, a beautiful thing that brings out the wonder of who Christ is and puts Christ on a plane by himself. It's a plane that Paul constructs so that the people in Colossae will have what they need, an accurate and perfect, beautiful view of Christ. And Epaphras, he backs up the dump truck of relational struggle and theological goo and practical worry. And Paul says, look, I'll help you. You don't need a new strategy for your ministry. You don't need a new methodology to attack the local pagan syncretistic hodgepodge Jesus plus kind of religion scene. You don't even need Paul. You need Christ over all. And as you read the letter that Paul sent this church, you feel the weight and the wonder. You, you feel the mystery and the majesty and the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ that's just set over all the struggles of these believers in Colossae. There's no other help for your circumstances than Christ. There's no other solution for your problems than Christ. There's no other answer for your questions than Christ because there is none like Christ. Christ. And if you read Colossians and you don't get that, you haven't read Colossians. Only Christ can save you from the world's lies. Only Christ can save you from your sin. Only Christ can save you from a life, an existence of temporary mediocrity. Instead, of, Christ gives you eternal glory. So Paul says, Epaphras, buddy, take a seat. I got something for you. Let me write it out. You catch your breath. You've been a faithful shepherd. You've labored alongside these brothers and sisters. You've done a great job preaching on behalf of the Lord. But 
but let me write a letter to your little flock. And so Paul writes it out. And you can imagine Epaphras, my guess, is kind of leaning over Paul's shoulder, wondering what he's telling these people. And Paul finishes this letter. He seals it and he hands it to Tychicus and Onesimus. And he says, take this to those people. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, sends this letter inspired by the Spirit, revelation directly from God to the Colossians. And what's the main point? It's very simple. Christ over all. We've spent the last 23 months picking our way through this letter, ringing out the beautiful truths that Paul's given to these believers in Colossae. But consider this for a second. What did Paul expect for them to do with this letter? Read it, admire it, pass it on to the church in Laodicea, frame it, keep it for future posterity. No. He expected them to read this letter and be transformed by it because that's what God's word does. So let's consider the whole letter this morning. Now that we've pieced it out. Now that we understand what the parts mean, how can we take the whole beautiful message of Colossians and live it? Now that we know that Christ is over all, how can we live as though Christ is over me? Paul will tell us if we'll listen. So please stand with me if you're able. We're going to read the whole letter. I realize that might be too much for some of you. No problems. Just Take a seat when you need. Let's wrap our minds around Colossians and allow Jesus to wrap his reign around our whole lives. Read with me Colossians beginning chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be 
preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile, in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints." To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who've not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance, understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. Nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, 
Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, city and slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful." Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. 
for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Chapter 4, verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of Laodicea and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father, how kind you are to provide us with what we need, a real, true portrait of who we are, who you are, and what our Savior has done. We help us this morning to take these truths that we've studied to allow them to collectively change the direction of our life to fit the beauty of Christ. Help us to see how these truths fit together and work together to transform us from who we were into who you've made us to be. We need your help to consider our lives with humility, to consider our sin, to confess, to repent, to turn from Send to trust in our Savior and to pursue righteousness for your glory. We ask that you'll help us because we need it. And you deserve our lives, so help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you. You may be seated. Flip back to chapter 1. And we're going to work our way 
through the book of Colossians rather quickly. Paul opens this letter about the centrality and the supremacy of Christ with a simple introduction of himself because though he didn't know the Colossians, they likely knew him fairly well. His encouragement to these believers is genuine and heartfelt admiration of what God has done in them. And what we need to see in the opening salvo of this letter is that we need to submit to Christ over our needs. Instead of being dominated by the spiritual needs of our life, we need to submit to Christ and trust him in them. Paul makes sure these people understand that Paul is not the authority that is behind everything he says. Paul is not the point. Instead, he's the apostle. We revere the term apostle, but the apostle just means the one who's been sent, the one who has an authority that's been delegated, the one who's not the genesis but serves the one with the authority. You could say it like Paul's not the cook, he's the waiter. Paul's just the messenger. A message from Paul is a problem, but a message from Christ is all these believers could ever need. And so in verse 3, Paul's message begins with thanksgiving because of what God has done. And then in verse 6, Paul, uh, the, the Colossians understood the grace of God, which brings about Paul's thanksgiving. The point is to magnify the beauty of what God has done. Paul is laying the foundation that he's going to use throughout the rest of the book to appeal to the work of God that he's already done to trust him for the present and believe in him for the future. Verse 9, Paul prayed that God would continue doing what only God can do so that the Colossians would be able to respond how, in verse 10, to walk in a manner worthy of God, bearing fruit, living lives that honor the Lord. So this seems already right out of the gates pretty lofty from Paul's perspective. How do we trust what Paul says should be happening? Well, we trust the one who makes it happen. And Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 deals that, details that for us. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul says, dear Colossians, I'm not asking you to make things right. I'm not asking you to fix yourselves. I'm reminding you of what God has done. We don't work out our life. We don't make our life matter. We don't solve our problems. Only Christ does these things. So throughout the rest of the letter, Paul's pointing back to the work of God in salvation so that the Colossians can trust God in sanctification and hope for God in glorification. Only Christ can do these things. And when we live our life in submission to him, not dominated by our needs, our life will preach the simple message that Paul is commending to the Colossians that Christ is over all. Second, Paul gets to the heart of why Christ can be trusted to deliver us and transform our lives. Because Christ is over everything. Christ is over everything. This is a beautiful hymn, possibly an early church hymn, but surely something that Paul uh, loved. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 20. And then Paul uh, reminds us how we live because of it in 21 to 23. This would have struck deep into the heart of the Colossian believers because of where they were. They were raised in a syncretistic hotbed of paganistic and 
polytheistic, any God goes kind of religion. Paul said, that doesn't work. In 61 AD, Paul says, nope, it's Jesus only or you have no hope. And today, in the face of religious pluralism, Paul would say the same thing. It's Jesus only or you have no hope. And Jesus needs to be defined by his word and not our cultural understanding. Jesus needs to be defined by his word and not academia's imposition on a pseudo-historical figure. Jesus needs to be able to define himself and his words are here that define who he was. This ancient hymn of praise to God the Father about the Son and his work proves to the Christian there is no hope outside of hoping in Christ. But when we hope in Christ, we have every hope. We have every reason for hope in Christ. Why could we hold up Christ as that valuable and that worthy and that high above every other supposed God? Because none is able to save but one. None is able to redeem but one. None is able to protect us but one. None is able to secure our future but one. Jesus is above and preeminent over all creation. He's the agent of creation. He is uncreated and as such, he is unable to owe anybody anything. Instead, the opposite is perfectly true. Everybody owes him everything. He's the one to whom all glory is due because all things were created by him and into verse 16, through him and for him. He alone sustains everything. If it is, if it exists, if it is, Christ sustains us. And in the church, Christ is the head. He gives us direction. He receives our worship. He is the object of our affection. He is the fount of what we need. And Christ has the right to be our affection because he possesses the fullness of God. But it's not something that he holds on to. It's something that is who he is. He is, in fact, God. And as God, Christ, through his work, took all things, whether on heaven or earth, and by his tortured death, suffering injustice, he made by the gory blood of his wrath-filled wrath-absorbing cross he made right. Why does Paul such, put such a premium on Christ over all things? Because if Christ wasn't over all things, he couldn't be the one that we trust in. He couldn't be the one that we see in verses 21 and 22. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled by his body of flesh or purchased out of by his body of flesh, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Can there be any more precious words for the believer to understand? Is there a truth more worthy of your dedication than that? Is there anything in your life that should produce from you a greater passion to live for than the reality that you were far off and God gave his son and his son willingly died to be the payment for your sin so that he could purchase you full price and bring you into his kingdom forever? There we were, far off, but Jesus, the ruler of all, the king of everything, died for his enemies that we might live for him, live in him, 
and proclaim him. Because Christ is over all, that passion drove Paul. I wonder, does it drive you? Do you glory in Christ over everything else that is? Or do you struggle like the Colossians with Jesus and? Third, when Christ is over all, we reject or we rejoice in Christ over even our ministry, over even the good things we do for Christ. We rejoice in Christ over everything. Paul moves to a testimony of his personal response to the beauty of the gospel. Because Christ is our head, as his body, we seek to live always in every way and everything for him. Paul did this, and he says it brought out of him a passion to rejoice, Colossians 1, 24. Rejoice in what? His sufferings? You see, even though much of Paul's ministry should have brought sorrow, should have brought depression, Paul rejoiced. Why? Because he was rejoicing in his Savior. As he pins this letter for Epaphras' people, he hears the clanking of his chains, reminding him of his suffering and his struggle. But he rejoices because he doesn't live for ministry. He lives for Christ. He serves his master, Christ. And Christ has given him the mystery that was once concealed that nobody understood, verse 26, to now be revealed that our hope and our help and life and future is Christ in us. There are many beautiful truths that Paul learns in his studies and experiences and from God's revelation, but what dominated his passion was this, the wonder of transformation wrought by the gospel that matured once lost sheep into the beautiful bride of Christ, growing in the beautiful image of Christ. Jesus and rejoicing in Jesus is the passion of Paul's life and the substance of Paul's ministry. Colossians 1, 28 and 29, Paul uses the term we. I wonder if it's accurate when you read it. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That was Paul's passion. Is it ours? In chapter 2, Paul again reminds the Colossians that their need is not Paul's wisdom. Their need is not the wisdom of a local spiritual guru. They need the wisdom of God that Paul prays will saturate their assembly as they're knit together in love and bring out the, the riches of full assurance and understanding of the mystery of Christ that reveals the treasure of God's wisdom and knowledge. Not this stingy, like, dollar menu size, but the treasure of God's wisdom. Look to Christ, Christian. You need him more than any outside knowledge or worldly wisdom or even the fruits of your ministry. Glory in Christ and rejoice in him over everything else. Fourth, trust in Christ over your efforts. Chapter 2, verses 6 to 23, Paul is making a simple argument. Because Jesus is glorious, because Jesus is all-powerful, because Jesus is all-sufficient, we trust in him over ourselves. 
And just as it was for those in Colossae, it's difficult for us to do that. Paul was addressing specifics Epaphras brought him, but he didn't address them in detail or particular. It's as if the details weren't that important. The reality was the solution was what they desperately needed. They needed the solution most. And what's the solution? Christ over all. With Christ in the proper place, Paul knew the Colossians would choose Christ. So Paul simply points out the insufficiency of religion, the inadequacy of our efforts, the stupidity of thinking that God could be pleased by eating certain foods on certain days. Unless, of course, it's coconut cream pie tonight. <laughs> Chapter 2, verses 6 to 7 are God's plan for your life. This is the positive in the section. This is what you need. You need lots of things as a believer. And Paul tells you where to find them. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. When you're living out this simple day one of discipleship truth, you'll be safe from the junk of religion and free from the terror of your sinful past and full of the beauty of our perfect Savior. Only by Christ, receiving Christ by faith and walking in him as the pattern of your life and the habit of your life can you be marked safe from the philosophy and empty deceit that this world and the traditions of this world so quickly conjures up. Sink the roots of your faith in the soil of Christ and stay out of the weeds of this world. Because either you're filling yourself with Christ, walking in him, rooted in him, full of joy and thanksgiving because of him, or the end of verse 8, what's true of you? You're, you're, what you're taking in is not in accord with Christ. It's tempting to think that we need to evaluate and understand and critique all the arguments the world comes up with. Our society is becoming passionately pluralistic, aggressively syncretistic, and combatively accepting of every form other than anything that says Jesus only, Christ over all. Paul wasn't impressed. Paul didn't care. When you read chapter 2, you feel the weight Epaphras carried with him from Colossae to Rome. You sense his feelings of inadequacy to combat the stuff that was going on. As these supposed wisdom lovers were poking holes in the faith of the Colossian believers, you sense his struggle of soul as he saw the false teachers who wove in some Judaism with a bunch of paganism and a dash of mysticism, all designed to drive a wedge between just Jesus and these believers. Paul says, look, you've got Christ. You're saved. You received them by faith. Just keep going. Verse 9 and 10, why do we do this? For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled, who is the head of all rule and authority. Jesus is your salvation. Not a philosophy, not a methodology, not a new theology, but Christ, 
the Messiah, the long-awaited prophet, priest, and king has come, and he's accomplished what his people couldn't so that you could believe in him and by faith in him have the life that you desperately need. And we are, when we're in him by faith, we're buried in him. His death satisfies the requirements of our death. The sin that our death the death that our sin earned is satisfied by Christ, Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul says, hey, fancy pants philosophers, checkmate. I got you. You're done. Jesus, that's all you need. His work, his wisdom, your stuff doesn't cut the mustard with God. You say, well, what about all these things? What about these things that we see in the Old Testament? What about these feasts? And what about these? Well, Paul says, hey, they were worth something. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. These, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Friend, these things God instituted were all designed to show the inability of man and point to the necessity of Christ. We have entire movements of Christianity going back to the shadows because they're foolish and they don't read Colossians. But Paul says, look, go to Christ. That's what you need. Don't worship the shadow when you have the sun. If you've died in Christ, you're free from those who say things like don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, verse 22. Uh, maybe the bells and smells religions are tempting. They look impressive. They feel enlightened. Paul says, yeah, verse 23, they do. They have indeed an appearance of wisdom. What's that mean? They're not wise. They have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Friend, don't stare at the shadow. Fix your eyes on the one who is over all, Christ. Fifth, don't let the here and now captivate you, dominate you, or deceive you. Instead, live for Christ over this world. How? Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Don't miss Paul's argument. It's very simple. If, if Jesus is who he claims to be, then we don't need to fear anything in this life. We don't need to live for anything on this earth because we have Christ. So what do you do with that? Well, so you live for him with your passions set on him. If you're in Christ, if you say he died for me, then you also must say you live for him. Those two things have to go together. Colossians 3, 5 says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. But don't be confused and don't listen to the, the mockers in the world say that Christianity is all about what you don't do because Paul says instead, verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. If Christ is who he claims to be and we profess our allegiance to him as our king and our hearts and minds and lives are lived for him, then we'll be transformed into his image. Glory is coming. 
Sanctification is present, and it dominates our life to the degree that not just our personal lives are changed, but our collective corporate existence in being one body indistinguishable from one another is affected. Our old identities of race and socioeconomic status and intellect, etc. Verse 11, here there's not Greek and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, city, and slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. We're simply not who we were because of Christ and what he has done. And we live for him over anything in this world. And so we even do things like put up with each other and forgive one another. Why? Because we are no longer who we were. So who you were used to say, "Uh uh-uh, you're not going to do that to me. And who you are says, sister, brother. We live in this world with Christ dwelling in us, his word abiding in us, living in us, so that it comes out of us in everything. Not merely at church, but in life in its entirety. We live for the Lord Jesus in whatever we do, always living for him over this world because he is over all. Six, because Christ is our life, our passions are set in heaven with him to please him. When that's true, we obey Christ in everything, even over our culture. Things in our culture that dominate our lives are things like marriage, family, career. Not necessarily bad things, but they're not Christ. Christ is over everything in our life. We don't want our best life now. We want Christ to be glorified, whatever that means. We don't want our kids to grow up and have the fancy pants job title and the big house and the new car. We want them to grow up and know and serve Christ. We don't live like the world around us because our minds and our passions are not on the world around us. They're set in heaven. And so when we work, we work for Christ. We don't work for promotion or accolades. We work for Jesus. When we set value on things in this life, Jesus is the standard. How he evaluates is how we evaluate it. No matter what the world thinks we are, we find our identity in Christ. And because our identity is in Christ, our service is to Christ. And so whatever you do, verse 20 and 23 and 24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. We live for Christ. Our values are set by Christ. Our work is judged by his standards. Our rewards come from his pleasure. Our entire life here is all designed to make much of him there. From Sunday to Saturday, we obey Christ. Our lives are his. And lastly, we follow Christ over anything else. His calling on us is to love one another and to make more and better disciples in this life. That should drive our life. And so Paul commands us to make our lives burnt offerings or or prayers that bring opportunity for obedience to Christ. And when Christ gives us opportunity that we pray for in verse 2, we walk in wisdom in verse 5, and we live for him by advancing his message in the world around us. His wisdom allows us to live lives that are gracious displays of God's transforming work and message. No matter the circumstances, no matter our gifting, no matter our struggles, we follow Christ in everything. We follow Christ. We've called, we follow Christ over family. We follow Christ over comfort. We follow Christ over leisure. We follow Christ over ministry. And the biggest one, we follow Christ over the me monster. We follow Christ. And that was the example of Paul's life. He could have settled down in Corinth where people kind of went in and out. He could have started a ministry, paul.com. 
He could have made a home base in Ephesus. He could have had a mega church. He didn't. He labored for Christ. With the laundry list of these men and women who finished chapter 4 from verses 7 to 17, he labored with them through his travels. They saw and experienced Paul's love. They watched and witnessed his suffering on their behalf so that he could bring them Christ and he could bring them to Christ. And Paul closes the letter with a reminder of the personal cost he paid to follow Christ as well as the return on that cost. Colossians chapter 4, verse 18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Paul says, my struggle's real. I'm chained to it. But you, friend, you have grace. Live in that grace. Grace, the most beautiful concept woven through Paul's life and letters. What we do not deserve and cannot merit, God gives by his grace. What we need but cannot find, God gives by his grace. Grace, the work of God's son on behalf of God's enemies, freely given. Grace. Paul's not afraid of his chains. He's not worried about them keeping him from faithfulness, but Paul knows he's a man, so he asks for help. He says, pray for me. Life's hard. I'm chained up. It's not what I want. I mean, we struggle when there's cones for seven months on 30th. (laughs) Paul's chained. He needs prayer. He says, remember my chains. Pray for me that I'll be faithful to follow Christ over anything else, even my comfort, even my security, all of my life. Pray for me. Pray what, Paul? That he would relish the reality that God has already given us what we need to follow Christ over anything else. Grace. What's the message of Christ? What's the message of Colossians? Christ over all. Christ is over your spiritual needs, so choose him. Christ is over all creation, so worship him. Christ is over your ministry, so rejoice just in him. Christ is over your efforts. He's done what you could not. Christ is over this world. If you want satisfaction, pursue him. Christ is over culture. Seek to please him and not your neighbor. Christ is over you. Follow him. I wonder, Christian, what issues do you have in your life? What struggles dominate the free space in your mind? What sins are you fighting? What sins are you not fighting? What theological arguments do you have by yourself in the dark? Where are you tempted to try and earn God's favor with works instead of trusting in the work of Christ? What are those things? You've got them in your mind. What would Paul say to you? Christ over all. If Paul sent us a letter, call it Colossians say, but I got this specific problem. Yeah, I'm sure there were people that got this letter that thought, he didn't address my problem. And Tychicus said, yeah, he did. Christ over all. What a blessing we have from God for us. May we live Christ over all, especially Christ over me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the way you care for us with your word. Pray that we'll be faithful to not just admire it and discuss it, but that we would live it. That when we look at each other, we would see examples of lives that Christ reigns over. Joy-filled pursuits of the beauty of Christ. Help us, we need it. So we ask in Jesus' name, amen.